This is an ABC podcast. Does even the idea of conflict make you break out in hives? It does for me. Isn't it easier if we all just got along, especially at work? Not so fast. What if I were to tell you that arguing can actually make teams more innovative and productive? Hello, I'm Lisa Leong. Today on This Working Life, with me is journalist Ian Leslie. His book is called Conflicted, Why Arguments Are Tearing Us Apart and How They Can Bring Us Together. G'day, Ian. Hello, Lisa. Now, Ian, who did you interview for this book? I wanted to understand the dynamics of disagreements and conflict and really tough conversations. Um, So on the one hand, I I went to talk to psychologists who study communication at home between couples, uh, in the workplace, in, in teams. But then I also wanted to talk to people who don't just study it, but really practice it every day. And I talked to people who have really tough, conflict-ridden conversations for a living. So I talked to interrogators, hostage negotiators, uh, addiction therapists, divorce mediators. Um, and they're all kind of doing different jobs, but they all have to deal with people who really don't want to talk to them, or if they do want to talk to them, have a very kind of tough conversation with them. And these experts are masters of managing those conversations and finding a way to make them productive and and, and make them work. So I learnt an awful lot from them. And you um, have a saying about the universal grammar of productive disagreement. So what do all arguments have in common? They all have in common these two fundamental levels of communication. So in any argument, any disagreement, there's the thing that we are disagreeing about, right? So we're disagreeing about politics or disagreeing about a decision at work, right? You're sitting around a table and you say, I think that's the wrong decision. And that decision is the content level of the disagreement. But there's this other kind of subterranean level, which is the relationship level. And the relationship level is what do you think about me and what do I think about you? Do you respect me? Do you like me? Do I respect you? Do you like me? And that relationship level is unarticulated. It's very rarely uh, directly expressed. It's not verbalized, but it actually lies underneath that content level. And unless that relationship level is settled, unless there's agreement essentially at that relationship level, where we both feel like we're getting the right amount of respect or affection or whatever it is, then the content level is just going to fail. Either we won't get into the disagreement at all because we'll just avoid it because we sense that it's going to go badly, or we'll get into a terrible row because one of us thinks that we're being disrespected or the other person is trying to dominate me or push me around and it turns into a power struggle. So going back to the example of the interrogator, they make sure that they found some sort of concord at that relationship level before they get into the content. And that, when I talk about the universal grammar of of disagreement, it's really that that applies to whether you're arguing with your partner or with your children or with co-workers. It's really crucial that you pay attention to this part of the conversation that's not articulated 
first before you get into the ostensible content. And, and then once you have that relationship level settled, once the trust is there, you can really get into the content and really have a vigorous disagreement and unlock all the benefits of a good disagreement. In fact, the scientist Francis Crick said, the enemy of true collaboration is politeness. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, he, he was um, very uh, English character in a sense <laughs> very oxford where the whole point was you know you have to demolish your interlocutor's arguments before breakfast and there's a kind of absolutely kind of ruthless sense of intellectual warfare now not everybody's suited to that but he did have a point which is that disagreement and debate does make us smarter when it's done right. Because in a disagreement, you are on your best, uh, you know, your high performance game, because you're trying to think of more and more reasons, because the other person is kind of pushing you a little bit for, you know, to think a little bit harder, and you're pushing yourself to think a little bit harder about what you think. Actually, often it's only in a disagreement with someone that you really have to reflect on why you hold certain opinions and certain beliefs. And either that will make you better at defending what you already believe, or perhaps in a good disagreement, you'll hear what the other person's saying, and, and that will modify or change what you believe. Either way, your thinking will be advanced, right? Uh, it will be moved forward. And there's lots of evidence, both scientific and anecdotal, that groups make much better decisions and groups are collectively more intelligent. Teams at work make better decisions when they disagree. When people just sit around a table and, you know, the most powerful person in the room says, well, this is what I think we should do. And everyone just sits around and nods and says, yep, great idea. Well, that's a recipe for really bad decisions. And can not dealing with conflict at work come at a cost to productivity? Yeah. I mean, the problem with not dealing with it is that the differences and the tensions that exist in any company just become submerged into passive aggression, right? It's sometimes called office politics. There's a great example that I talk about in the book of an American airline that you might have heard of called Southwest Airlines. Southwest Airlines is remarkably successful airline in a very, very tough industry it's been profitable for several decades straight. And big reason for its incredible run of success is that it's much more collaborative than most other airlines. I didn't realize this until I read a, a book by a management scholar about the airline industry and, and how they handle collaboration and, and disagreement. In most of the industry, there's a huge amount of office politics, which I hadn't realized... But um, there are all these different functions involved in turning around a plane on the ground, right? The plane lands, the quicker you get it off the ground and flying again, the better. All those people hate each other. <laughs> um, there's a great quote that this scholar uncovered from somebody who worked for one of the major American airlines, right? That wasn't Southwest, right? Gate and ticket agents think they're better than the ramp. The ramp think they're better than the cabin cleaners. And the cabin cleaners look down on the building cleaners. The mechanics think the ramp agents are a bunch of luggage handlers. <laughs> so now when people are <laughs> engaged in that kind of internal competition and politics, then very little gets done. It's very unproductive. Southwest realized that very early on. And their way of dealing with it was not to say, 
just don't get into arguments, just, just be nice to each other. It was to say, look, as soon as a tension develops, and there are always tensions and, and disagreements, we flag that and we have a, what they call informally, a come to Jesus meeting. And mm. in a come to Jesus meeting, the two sides sit down in a room together. There's usually a, a mediator and they openly say, look, this is why I'm so frustrated with you. Or, or this is why I think this is going wrong. And it's, and, and I think it's partly your fault and partly our fault. How, however it is, but there's a reason it's called a come to Jesus meeting is that it involves a kind of, you know, a bearing of the soul, right? And, and they do get quite emotional, but almost always they resolve some really important tension and the team moves on and they feel closer to each other and much more productive as a result. Uh, you were talking about scientists. In terms of innovation, is there also a cost to innovation? I mean, there's a, a great quote in your book, when two men always agree, one of them is unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Um, we put a great emphasis on getting along and cooperation in the workplace, right? Particularly these days, it, it goes along with the emphasis on diversity. And all these things are good, right? I like diversity. I like getting along. All those things are important to a good functioning society and, and to good productive companies. However, I do not think we put enough emphasis on open disagreement and handling that. Because if you really want to unlock the benefits of diversity, then you need to unlock all the different diverse experiences and insights of everybody in your team. And if the people sitting around the table are very diverse, but they all agree with each other very quickly about, you know, whoever says the first thing and everybody kind of nods along, then you're not unlocking the benefits of that diversity. Disagreement is a great way, really the best way we have of thinking in groups, right? Because disagreement makes everybody say, hey, hang on a minute, I have a point of view of that, or I have an experience here that's relevant and that's different to yours, or I have some information here that you don't have. Let me tell you why it supports my case. And when you've got everybody around the table doing that, you get a much greater variety of insight and, and experience and information brought to the discussion. Actually, under ideal conditions, you get this kind of Darwinian process where the weakest arguments get weeded out and the strongest ones survive. And you raise everybody's level at the same time. So I think that's the point of that quote, which is, okay, look, you know, if you are not disagreeing with each other, then kind of, why are you here? I've been in meetings where they do get heated and then somebody says, hey, let's just take this offline. Let's take it off the table. Now, you say this could be a negative thing. Why is that in? Yeah, because it, it starts to creep back into office politics and passive aggression, right? If you're having the difficult conversations in private, it kind of suggests that you're not prepared for your argument to be exposed to the light of debate. And that you don't want everybody in the team to know how this uh, point of view is going to go or how this argument is going to go. And there's something that I think is corrosive to relationships about that because everybody starts wondering, you know, well, who's having which offline conversations with who? Funnily enough, I was, uh, this is not in the books, I was just speaking to her recently, but she's a senior executive at Netflix. And 
Netflix put a great emphasis on open disagreement and on its importance. And she joined fairly recently. And the company she'd come from before was a very good place, but there were a huge amount of offline conversations, of corridor mm. conversations. And I said to her, is it quite tough to have so much open disagreement and questioning of your views kind of, you know, in public, as it were, at big meetings with senior executives and so on? And she said, yes, it is at first. But you know what? It soon becomes liberating because you can hear people's disagreements with you or people's views and what you're doing out in the open, right? It's not like when you leave the room, I don't worry about what they're saying in the corridors because I've heard it all. <laughs> you know, I had it out there in the arena, as it were, and I was able to put my view back, right? And we were able to have a, a debate about it. And actually, it might be a little bit discomforting in the moment, but over the long run, it's liberating. I think there's a bit of a gap. So in Australian workplace culture, I would say that if somebody said something which disagreed with your point of view, that could be seen as a slight on your reputation, a sort of a bit of a face thing. And that's probably the same in the UK culture from my time in London. Yeah. How do we get over that gap? We, we can address it in a couple of ways, right? One of them is how can I kind of address it in myself, right? So how can I learn to see disagreement not as a threat to my status? There's another way of thinking about it, which is how do I help the other person not feel like I'm threatening them? There's a sociologist that I quote in the book called Irvin Goffman, who talked about face work. And face work is the effort that we're putting in to looking good, you know, in the meeting, not, not literally, or sometimes literally, uh, but, but, you know, projecting our best version of ourselves, right? And when we're putting a lot of cognitive effort into face work, we're actually really not thinking about what we're actually saying, right? So again, the content level of the disagreement or the discussion just kind of goes by the by. So really, it's in everybody's interest to reduce the amount of face work going on in the room. And you can do that with the other people just by putting them at their ease and making them feel that they are putting the best version of themselves across. Do that subtly, but you can say things like, what you've done here is really impressive. You've given a great presentation or, you know, I've really respected the work you've been doing over the last six months and it's great to be talking to you with you now. And then you can get into the disagreement because you actually put in a bit of face work for them. And once you've done that, you'll kind of lower their defences and make them feel a bit more relaxed and therefore more willing to listen to you and engage properly. And the final thing I'd say on this is, if you have a company culture where it's just expected that people will disagree and often quite directly, then people don't feel slighted by it because it's just the thing that we do. And that's ultimately what you're aiming for. There are good cultures and bad cultures and a really productive culture is one in which disagreement is just a sign of respect rather than the opposite. Thanks so much, Ian. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Journalist Ian Leslie and Ian's book is Conflicted, Why Arguments Are Tearing Us Apart and How They Can Bring Us Together. Stay with me now as we kiss and make up, diving into the art of the apology. Why is it so dang hard to say sorry, especially at work? And if we were a whole lot better at it, it might save a lot of unnecessary conflict, perhaps. With me now is someone who has mastered the art of the apology, so much so that in his work as a media advisor and trainer, 
He teaches others when, where and how to apologise, sometimes in the most public of ways. Brett Dehut, welcome to This Working Life. <laughs> oh, great. It's a pleasure to be here. Brett, how did you become so interested in the apology? Well, I've been training people in public speaking and media interviews for quite a long time, a long time ago as a journalist. Mm. And I noticed that clients themselves proactively started to ask me in the first conversations, do you deal with apologies? Oh. And I remember the first time I, I heard that, that struck me as unusual, oddly specific. But I also realised that apologies were on the rise in the culture. We were seeing people, prime ministers and CEOs and institutions apologise. And I think when leaders see that on television of an evening, they think, how would I go doing that? And uh, I think there's also a movement to be a bit more sensitive in our workplaces, of course, and a bit more human, and apologies are at the heart of that. And why do you think it is so hard to apologise? I think a good apology requires a couple of things. Empathy, number one, you have to actually put yourself in someone else's position, and then you have to get rid of your ego to think, oh, boy, I've done the wrong thing. I'm going to have to admit to it. And I'm going to have to put myself in a vulnerable position and ask for forgiveness or at least acknowledge some wrongdoing. And empathy is in short supply and ego is in oversupply. So those two things alone means apologies are very fraught and awkward and rare. You mentioned weakness. Are there other reasons why people find it hard to apologise, do you think? I'd put the blame on some lawyers or legal <laughs> advisors. I mean, classically, PR people do recommend that leaders or spokespeople apologise, acknowledge, make amends, and then the legal people say, well, you know, that's really acknowledging wrongdoing and that could open us up to financial ruin or just more trouble down the track. So, so many institutions just play a straight bat, acknowledge nothing, give the minimum, do it at the last possible moment. Too many apologies, by the way, are delivered as part of a legal settlement those apologies are really meaningless, except to humiliate the person who's giving the apology. And do you think then we should sort of practice in a small way, doing our practice apologies first before we go big time? I think apologies don't have to be big, major issues. They can be a smaller apology for a smaller offence more often. And even that word apology is a big dramatic word. It could be just an acknowledgement Oh, Lisa, I'm sorry. I really didn't consider your idea very well when you pitched it at the meeting. We're in a rush, blah, blah, blah. Just small garden variety apologies can really keep teams working much more cohesively. They also stop the need for a bigger apology down the track. And why do you think even these smaller scale sorries can be a powerful thing? Oh, I think for the people receiving them, it means that they are to use that common modern phrase, they are seen, they are heard, they are uh, treated with some respect. Because you can talk about respect in a workplace forever, but those small acts mean a lot. Let's get into some specifics, Brett. So in your experience, what makes a good apology? It should be quick, as I said. They're perishable things and <laughs> apologies that come at the end of a lot of argy-bargy are less meaningful. It's as simple mm. as that. I want to hear it from your leader. Take us to your leader. You know, don't set some poor spokesperson or HR person down to deliver it. It's got to be from the top. That's super important. Another huge thing is the first apology should be 
to the people who are directly impacted. If the first apology, we've seen very recently a former Lord Mayor of Melbourne give an apology via the media, but not person to person. Now, that is strange and inappropriate. And if I have offended you, I should apologise to you. I might not have to take it bigger than that. But first off, start with the people who have been offended. I think it's really crucial also to remedy the situation before, preferably, you apologise. I got a call from a fundraising company CEO on a Saturday afternoon, and I didn't know him very well. It was clearly very urgent to him. He had realised or he had been instructed that they'd been underpaying staff for a number of years. Mm. And one of my first questions is, what are you doing to essentially remedy the situation? And he said, oh, nothing. You know, and then the bare minimum as required by law. And I, I didn't represent him or I didn't uh, consult to him because I really wasn't interested in working with someone who wasn't willing to really genuinely acknowledge what he'd done wrong and really genuinely and generously make amends. So if you're just hoping to talk your way out of a problem, um, that's not quite enough. Thank you very much. You actually have to make amends and be able to demonstrate that. That will mean a lot more than words. And then in terms of what you should and shouldn't say, what is your advice there? Because sometimes apologies are constructed in a way that don't really feel like apologies, like I'm really sorry that you took this completely the wrong way and are <laughs> blowing it out of proportion. <laughs> that, that won't cut it. That, that person did not receive my consultation. Look, try not to make it about yourself. You know, when Rupert Murdoch famously appeared before the British politicians after his phone tapping inquiry, and he said, this is the most humble day of my life. Well, who gives a damn about how you're feeling at that point, Mr. Murdoch? So please don't make it about yourself. Refuse the natural desire to explain it. So mm. to the best of your ability, keep it short and simple. So you might want to say, look, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have treated you like that, but our three-year-old hasn't been sleeping for the last week and I'm working on about four hours sleep and a whole lot of coffee. And, you know, by the way, we've got this urgent deadline and it's really stressing me out, And but don't. It will just dilute your apology. So don't, even if you've got a fantastic excuse or reason or justification, do your very best to avoid it and keep the apology simple and direct. I'd use words like, heaven forbid, I apologise. I am sorry. You know, I apologise to everyone that we offended. We're ashamed of our behaviour. That was the wrong thing to do. You know, really strong and direct language because people cynically listening to you are looking now for those weasel words and those sort of conditions that are applied. There should be no asterisk over your speech bubble. Just <laughs> give it to them straight and simple and goddamn mean it. And then you mention accepting an apology. Is there an art in accepting an apology? Well, an apology is a really ancient, twee, cute, delicate little construct that we have as human beings. And in the old days, the idea was I would apologise sincerely to you and you hopefully would accept my apology and that would allow us to move forward, to start again with a clean slate. But I think more and more, People are demanding apologies with very little intention to ever accept an apology. The demanding of an apology is all about shaming people and expressing anger. So if you are ever to receive an apology, and it's genuine and sincere, it might not be word perfect, but if you want to be part of the whole construct of an apology, you need to consider it, 
and accept it. And I would even recommend using an oddly old-fashioned and specific bit of language saying, Lisa, I appreciate your apology and I accept it. And then from that moment, you can just feel, I guarantee shoulders will drop and a sigh will be expressed and you'll be able to move on. But that happens less and less because people are quite happy to hold on to their grudge and their anger. And in a workplace, that just becomes toxic. Thanks so much. Oh, Lisa, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And to hear some real-life apologies to help you perfect yours, check out Brett's podcast. It's called The Hardest Word. Thanks for your company today. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you send this around to your friends who need a little sunshine at work right now. Join us next week as we have another ism in our sights, classism at work. I was introduced by the host to some key prominent people at the event as this is Amanda Rose. She's from Parramatta, but that's okay because, wait for it, she's gorgeous, she's smart and she's dating a politician. You know, that's extremely humiliating, like I needed to get the approval, um, but I also just had that moment of, wow, this is real. This is so real. That is so wrong. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong. And until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.